Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So the first reading is coming from Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. Yep. And I'm reading out of the NIV. So Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are arrogant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with a chisel and marks it with the compasses. He shapes it into a human form, human form in all of its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and and rain made it grow. It is used for fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it, and he makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meals. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. And he also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make it a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Our second reading is coming from Matthew, chapter 6, 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where the thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasures is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thanks very much, Ruth. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you this morning. Uh, If you are new or visiting, uh, my name's Jacko or Simon, lead pastor here at City Light Church North Adelaide. We are in week three of a series we're doing uh, called God and Money, how to handle money uh, in your heart and with your hands. And uh, 
as I said, I think, I'm not sure if I said this last week or the week before, but uh, as we go through today, we're going to be looking at lots of different Bible passages. So one of the things I can advise you to do is don't try and keep up finding all the passages in the Bible. Uh, I'm into that normally, uh, but maybe if you want to note down the passages we look at and you can look up them later, uh, but that's how we're going to roll uh, today, um, we did start a conversation about money a few weeks ago. Uh, so week one, uh, we thought about how, and we're thinking about how various aspects of God's character shape how we handle money. Uh, and so week one, we thought about how God uses his power shamefully for the good of others. And if money is power, then as people made in the likeness of God, saved and rescued through Jesus, we ought to use our power shamefully for the good of others like God. And so we should be using our money uh, in a way that is kind of, I don't know, strange to the rest of the world uh, because of how God shamefully used his power. Uh, Last week, uh, we thought about how God's love shapes how we use our money. Uh, We thought a bit about how God is the great provider. He provides for himself and he provides for those he's bound to. And so as people who are part of his family, we are called to provide for those who we're bound to. And in particular, we thought a bit about God's disturbing generosity, how he is just sort of unhinged when it comes to generosity. And as God's people again rescued through faith in Jesus, we too ought to be somewhat unhinged, um, disturbingly generous. Uh, Again, when the world looks on at our generosity, they they ought to shake their heads and go, what are they doing? But it's because we've experienced God's amazing generosity that we pass that on. That's kind of where we're up to today. And as we come to week three, um, I just want us to think a little bit about today why our financial decisions are so important. Why what we do with our money, our wealth, matters so much. That's what we're going to think about today. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I want you to look at something on the screen. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father and Lord of all, we ask that today you would open the eyes of our hearts, uh, Father, to see wonderful truths in your word. And we ask that, Father, you'd open our hands, uh, which are often, often pretty tight clenched if I speak personally. Uh, Help us by your spirit to open our hands to serve you, to serve one another and the world with all that we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do your financial decisions matter so much? Have a look at the screen. The pocketbook says, my money is the key to happiness. It's the key to power. It's the key to peace. It's the key to success. It's the key to capitalism. It's the key to producing purpose. And it's the key to finding love. That's my money. I wonder, do you know it? My money is a supreme money. No debased deceiver can debunk its buying power. It puts bread on the table. It makes me feel stable. It's the core of consumerism. It is beyond criticism. It has no euphemisms. Do you know it? It wakes me up in the morning and it keeps me up at night. It is the reward that I hoard. It dictates my day. It divides my attention. It's the big Benjamin. It's the cherished cheese. It's the green gravy. It's the lean lettuce. I wonder if you know it today. 
It has motivated every great person in all of mankind. It is incorruptible. It is indestructible. It is the translation of technology. It is the prescription of the powerful. It makes my heart appease. And it's the only thing that puts me at ease. Do I want more of it? Yes, please. I wish I could describe it to you, yes. It's uncomfortable. It's uncontrollable. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't get it without demand. Without it, you can't get by. You can't buy without it. The world can't function without it, and it lasts for all eternity. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's my money. Go ahead and clap your hands if you need to, because that's my money. That's my money. There you go. Is that the money you know? Is that the money you know? Um, I think I'd like to be able to preach like that, um, but I think you'd see right through it, pretty sure. Um, but is that the money you know? I mean, putting bread on the table, making you feel stable, that it's beyond criticism, that it divides your attention. Is that the money you know? Is it the only thing that puts you at ease? Because let's be honest, um, do we really believe Jesus, right, when he says you cannot serve both God and money? Do we really believe Jesus when he says you cannot serve both God and money? Or was Jesus, I don't know, when he said that, getting a little bit carried away? Is that just hyperbole? Do you not understand that if you're pretty clever, you can actually serve money kind of carefully just underneath God? Didn't he get that? Money and its pursuit, I reckon, has a stranglehold on our society. I think we've moved away from um, decades past where the creed kind of was going around, you know, the greed is good kind of principle. Um, I think it's a little unsophisticated for us today. But I think we hold in contempt, right, that sort of self-interest. I don't know, every year when you hear of, you know, the multinational corporations who are, you know, setting aside billions of dollars to pay their handful of executives their bonus, you know, so they're getting huge bonuses. We go, well, that's like, that's really crass and that's obvious greed. I don't know if we're enticed by that. I don't know if you have listened to the news of late, but... Um, when the government gave out the JobKeeper sort of amounts of money to various companies, um, lots of people took that up and the government gave it as a way to kind of keep businesses going as the pandemic kind of took over and things like that. And on the other side now, as things have kind of gotten a little bit better, um, there's been investigations into companies who made a lot of money out of the pandemic and also got the JobKeeper as well. And there have been calls for those people to give back, not to name names, but like Jerry Harvey, for example, from Harvey Norman was kind of caught out. And there was one, I think there was, I don't know, real estate's booming, right? There was a real estate company in Australia who got the JobKeeper, got squillions of dollars from it, and their profits went through the roof. Um, I don't know, when we hear about those sorts of stories, I think that sort of obvious kind of greed, well, we kind of go, that's just really wrong. But I wonder, secretly in our hearts, if that sort of a little bit of greed, that subtle love for more, is kind of in all of us. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Why is our approach to money so important? 
Well, because handling our cash is actually playing with our eternity. Uh, Martin Luther wrote this on the screen. Baptised or not, no greedy belly can be a Christian, but he has certainly lost Christ and has become a heathen. The two are intolerable to each other, being greedy and being a believer. And one has to eliminate the other. Why do your financial decisions matter so much? Because money is dangerous. It's dangerous. At least the power our hearts give to money is dangerous. A few weeks ago, week one, I said money is actually good and that's still true and I still believe that totally. I'm not backing away from that, but with our hearts, money can be a dangerous thing because we need to understand another aspect of God's character and would be remiss of me not to point it out as we look at money that our God, the living God, is a jealous God. Our God, the living God, is a jealous God. You see this in the Bible everywhere. It's really clear. There is only one God. And we had it read for us, Isaiah 44 and verse 6. I think it's coming up. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And as chapter 44 that Ruth just read out before rolls on, Now I know, brothers and sisters, we are conditioned when the Bible is read to sit really quietly and not say anything and not kind of respond overtly to what's being said. But Isaiah 44, you're actually meant to laugh, I reckon, okay? And we're not about to do it again. We're not gonna have a repeat. But when you hear that, right, it's actually one of those chapters where it's okay. You don't have to laugh, by the way, but it's okay to laugh when you hear what's being read. Because as the chapter rolls on, God is making fun of the stupidity of idolatry. I mean, what kind of idiot kind of God basically says is someone who would chop down a tree and think I can use half of it to create a fire and to make some bread and then use the other half and carve it and then bow down and say, this is the God whom I worship. It's the stupidity, right, of turning bits of creation and then treating them as if it's our creator. And it's really common. God has no true rival, brother and sisters. That's what Isaiah 44 is all about. Yet the fact we create rivals for him arouses his right jealousy. God is jealous. So here's a bunch of scriptures, right, coming up. Exodus 34, verse 14. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Zechariah 1.14, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Um, James 4 verse 5 in the New Testament talks about how God yearns for his people unto jealousy. And God is jealous for his reputation. Ezekiel 39, I will be jealous for my holy name. And then God acts also on his jealousy. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. God is a jealous God. And of course we need to see how this is not only right, but how it's also a really good thing. Now God isn't jealous, right? God is not jealous 
in a kind of petty, green-eyed monster kind of way, where he's just envious, right? And, you know, all he wants to do is get stuff for himself, kind of like the jealousy that I experience when I'm fathering my three children, when someone gets something and they don't get it and they're really jealous and envious and turn into green-eyed monsters. No, God is not like that. God's jealousy is an other person-centered jealousy. It's a pure and natural and good desire to protect what is good and right, just like in marriage. So John Calvin puts it this way, as the purer and chaster a husband is, the more grievously he is offended when he sees his wife inclining to a rival. So the Lord, who has betrothed us to himself in truth, declares that he burns with the hottest jealousy when the worship of his deity is transferred to another. Calvin there is saying, you know, a husband and a wife, when he sees his wife being unfaithful, it could go the other way, right, when a wife sees the husband being unfaithful, but you get the point. Um, John Calvin shows that God's jealousy flows not from hate, but from love, flows from other person-centeredness, not self-interest. You see, the immoral husband is not the one who jealously protects his marriage. The immoral husband is the one who doesn't care about his marriage. And God has poured himself out for his people He's entered into a covenant, a binding contract with them to make them his treasured possession. He's given up his son to secure and to make them his for all eternity, to make them his bride, his people. And for God to be anything less than jealous would be utterly immoral. It is for our good that God yearns for us jealously. What's that got to do with our money? Well, your financial decisions, my financial decisions matter because they have this dangerous power to provoke the jealousy of God. For greed is not a trivial sin. Now, all sin is sin, right, in one sense. In that all sin, sin being our rebellion against God and the resulting effects of that and the mess and the brokenness that we experience personally, individually, corporately, nationally, globally, all of that, um, all sin makes us impure. All sin makes us unfit for the kingdom of God, you know, because God is holy, his kingdom is holy. And, but at the same time, some sin is worse than other sins in that it's more damaging You may remember in the Gospels, right, the time when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because of what they do. He rebukes them because they're keeping all the trivial bits of the law and ignoring the greater parts of the law. So they sit around, right, uh, the Pharisees, tithing their herbs, right, cutting off, I don't know, 10% of their thyme and coriander and chili and dill, right, and then kind of proudly handing that in. They're doing this trivial stuff while ignoring the vital stuff like justice for the poor and caring for the widows and the orphans. Jesus confronts them and says, your problem is that you don't keep the whole law. And in doing that, Jesus says, you've got to keep both the small and the greater parts. 
He recognizes, yes, sin is sin, but some sin is more heinous than other sin. And I, I think greed is in the heinous sin category. In God's view, to engage in greed, to seek greed, to give in to greed, is in the same basket as bowing down to an idol. It's the same as worshipping a false god, whether it's a block of wood or Allah or a million of the Hindu gods or Buddha. Colossians 3.5, greed is idolatry, says Paul. Ephesians 5.5, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You see, greed is idolatry. Because what money does, it is invites all of us to misplace our trust. Money has this power to harness our hearts and close up our hands. Why do your financial decisions matter so much? Why do my financial decisions matter so much? Because they have the power to lead our hearts astray and provoke the jealousy of God. And because it's so important, it would be remiss of me not to take a week to think about this. So as a result of that extended intro, here are three things we must never do with our money. Here's the first one. We mustn't trust our money. God is our security. We mustn't trust our money. God is our security. Um, It's so instinctive, and and yet that's the heart of idolatry, trusting our money. Um, Job, Job in the Old Testament. Um, Job, you may be familiar with Job. He's an Old Testament character. Um, He is famous for his suffering and his hardship and difficulty that came upon him. Um, But prior to all the suffering and hardship and difficulty that came upon Job, he was actually an extraordinarily wealthy man. But this was his experience and this was his understanding of money. Job chapter 31 and verse 24. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. You see, Job understood the connection between wealth and idolatry. And although Job was filthy rich, so wealthy, he never made wealth his idol or obsession. The living God was the object of his trust, the source of his security, and the basis of his worship. For Job understood the spiritual suicide of trusting our money. Not only is it spiritual suicide, it's actually also just a stupid investment. The Bible makes it clear, so Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs eighteen ten: the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, the righteous run to it and are safe. There's that tendency, right, to think that, well, wealth will keep me safe and secure. I have that experience 
when I sometimes go and withdraw money from the ATM. Has anyone, who's, when was the last time you drew money out of the ATM? Like, never. Yeah, um, I did the other day. I had to pay someone some cash and I went to the ATM. And have you ever had the experience when you walk up to the ATM, which you might need to remember like years ago now, and you're putting, you're putting your pin number and then you see your bank balance. You know, and there are some days where my bank balance is looking really healthy and I feel good. I walk out of the on the run going, yeah, I'm secure. Take on the world. Some days I go into the on the run, run through money, and there's hardly anything there, and I feel terrified, like the world is going to end. Ever had that experience? The bank balance looks healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. The bank balance not so healthy. It's a bit shaky. The temptation to trust wealth. And yet, Paul writes to Timothy in the first century, 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich, and we are all rich by means of being in this room, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Money is an unworthy source, an uncertain source of security. It really can't achieve what we want. The poetic words from a song say, money can't buy back your youth when you're old, a friend when you're lonely, or peace for your soul. It's what Isaiah is mocking. The inability of idols, any idol, to really achieve what you want. And even when you think it has achieved what you want, it's not stable. Global financial crisis, they happen. And when they happen, investments just disappear. Pandemics happen and money can just disappear. No bank account, no share portfolio can stop hurricanes and floods and diseases like cancer or even pandemics like COVID-19 don't bypass you because of your financial status. Of course, like don't get me wrong, there are benefits and protections afforded to us by having the power of wealth. We spoke about that in week week one. But the error we fall into is when we start thinking that having all this wealth makes us invincible and makes us impenetrably secure. What do we do instead? How do we make sure we're not finding our security and our meaning and our significance in money? Spend it generously. That's how we demonstrate that we don't trust wealth, brothers and sisters. We give it away. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this counterintuitive logic, right? He encourages Christians to give generously, to give willingly, knowing that God will, in verse 11 of chapter 9, will enrich you in every way for your generosity. We might actually think about this next week, but we know when Paul writes, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, the original word um, in the Greek, which I won't give you the original Greek word, but it actually means hilarious. It's really cool. God loves a hilarious giver. You know, last week I said, what five words would describe you? You know, and one of the words that wasn't on my top five was the word generosity, but I encouraged us to put that on and work towards that. Maybe we should just write hilariously generous, where it's just like, it's not frivolous, but just really generous. Brothers and sisters, God will look after you. He will provide for you. 
Not that you will build unscalable walls of protection with your wealth, but so that you might give more out of away. I think that's, it's not in my notes, it's just come to me. It's dangerous territory. But I really think I'm not against people making money. I'm not against you getting a job which gives you more money at one level, but I just want to make sure you don't store it up for yourself. But that by having more, it just means you can give more. That'd be a good thing to do. The weird logic is, and it's natural logic, when by grace you've come to know a jealous God, that you would just give more away. It's the logic of Matthew 6, where Jesus challenges people like us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about money. Trust that God will provide. See, if we've really turned our backs on trusting money, it'll be seen in our generosity. Have you heard about the 20% challenge? The 20% challenge, have you heard of that before? If you faced a 20% cut in your salary today, what would you give up? Have you heard of that? I don't know, whatever's in your mind. You face a 20% cut in your salary today, what are you going to give up? The follow-up question is, well, why not voluntarily giving it up now, knowing God's generous provision? William Hartley understood the principle of, of knowing that he had been given so much and to be generous with giving it away. He was a philanthropist, he was a great businessman. Um, He had this proportionate giving system. Um, As his salary increased, so did his giving. But the percentage that he gave away also increased. He was known for being wildly generous to his employees. He regularly and voluntarily increased his workers' wages. He provided low quality, high quality, um, low, sorry, not low quality, low cost, high quality housing for his workers and also provided free medical care for them. Now, by the way, we are looking to employ a few people here at church. Uh, we're keen to prov- uh, employ a discipleship coordinator for women. Uh, we are looking to employ an admin person and we'd love to have student ministers join us. So if you join us, I'll be like him and I'll be wildly generous to you. Um, I'll give you low-cost, high-quality housing. I'll put, no, I won't, by the way. But this is what he said. This is what he said. This man, William Hartley. Nothing raises money to a higher plane and a higher interest than systematic giving. I sit on my money. I don't let it sit on me. To distribute my money is harder, more harder and more anxious a task than making it. That is, he thought deep, more deeply about where and how he could make the most so that he could give most away. He thought about how to get the money, but also how to give it away. Here's a guy who's understood the generous provision of God in his heart, and it was expressed through his hands. He saw the dangers of money, so he gave it away. We mustn't trust our money. Secondly, we mustn't serve money where to serve God and to serve people. Uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. By implication, you can serve money and you can serve God. But you can't serve them both together. 
not simultaneously. Francis Bacon said, If money be not thy servant, it will be thy master. The covetous man or woman cannot so properly be said to possess wealth as that may be said to possess him. In other words, do we have stuff or does stuff have us? Do we have money or does money have us? Why is it that so many intelligent and gifted people work to the degree that what they say really matters in life, relationships, family, and all of that, but they work so hard and so long to the point that all those things they value so much suffer really badly. In some way, our Australian culture has been an indentured, has become an indentured servant to money. And there was, it's an old book now, published in 2005, a book called Affluenza by a guy named Clive Hamilton. Um, I think the principles still kind of are helpful, but probably is a little bit outdated just as a book. But anyway, he, I remember coming across this idea that he, he shared, um, and it's really about how, like, you know, he plays in the word influenza and how our love for money and possessions has become something of a disease called affluenza. We can never get enough. Um, but he... Uh, he basically introduced me at the time. I've never had an American Express card. I've never been that significant in the world. Um, but uh, um, he talks about how there's this, um, you know, you can get this thing called the American Express Platinum Card. And if you have the Platinum Card, it comes with a promise. Um, here's the promise. For those times when you need assistance with life's little demands, Platinum Concierge is there for you whenever you need it. There are times a birthday is mentioned to you a moment before it's belated, or perhaps your anniversary is just around the corner. Simply call upon your concierge to organize a speedy bouquet and a reservation at the finest restaurant. And it goes on to promise, no more milling around in queues. Let us do the running around for you so you have most time to do the things that matter most. Essentially, this is an advert for people it's a perk for people who neglect their families. Presumably, what matters most means making more money rather than returning love to the ones that love you. Otherwise, you'd probably remember the anniversary or you'd organise the flowers yourself. Or in Brian Rosner's excellent book, Beyond Greed, I really recommend that, shares a story of a man who was at a counsellor because his family was falling apart. Um, he's been working 15 hours a day, seven days a week, always on call. The counsellor says, hey, perhaps it's your work. Why don't you walk away or why don't you just cut it down? In the book, the guy responds, I tried that last year and then they put up my salary by 25%. How do you walk away from that? We need to be honest with ourselves. If we neglect those who we are called to love, our families, our church family, even our enemies because we are so busy, is it because we are so busy serving our money? We mustn't provoke God's jealousy by misplaced service. We need to 
put up guards against it. Let me suggest one way to guard against this. I want you to have, I want to encourage you to have an honest conversation with someone else. Here at church would be great. About why you've made the decisions you have. Perhaps about letting parts of your life slide because of worldliness and the love for money and for greed. It may not be, but that may not be what's troubling, troubling you, but you may need to have that conversation. I want to encourage you to have that conversation. And here's another way to guard against kind of, you know, serving money. Make, I, I, want to, I want to encourage you to commit part of your week to serving people for free. Um, do some pro bono work. Maybe it's a, it's a church community putting some more time into preparing for DG or maybe a community service using your gifts. Um, I've known uh, in the church that I served in in Sydney, I've known some lawyers in that church who, who do extra work pro bono on the side for people in need. I mean, I don't have a Bible verse for that, right, that I can just pluck out and say, this is what God's word says, so go and do pro bono work. I don't have that. But I suspect if we commit to something regularly in a week, serving others where you don't get paid for it, it'll be a really good way for avoiding arousing the jealousy of God. The third thing, final thing you must never do, we must never do, we mustn't trust our money, we mustn't serve our money. Thirdly, we mustn't love our money. We mustn't love our money Rather, let's be devoted to the Lord Jesus, the King. Brothers and sisters, let's not be seduced by the power that money brings us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not the problem, is it? Rather, we become devoted to what it can achieve. And it's dangerous. Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And yet money has that power, doesn't it? Not the look of money, but what it can do. It can grip your thoughts and our passions and our devotion. It can grip our hearts. It can cause us to stay awake at night wondering about it. We invest hours being concerned for our money. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 13, verse 5, he's writing to Christians, keep your life free from the love of money. Instead, be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's really easy to fall in love with money and the power and the prestige and the, the looks that you get if you look like you got a bit of cash. I experienced this some time ago. Um, normally, many of you know, I drive a Mazda 6 wagon. It's a grey, beautiful thing that's parked out the front. No, grey Mazda 6 station wagon. Of late, actually, I've been cruising around in my mother-in-law's uh, little red Starlet, Toyota Starlet. It's tiny. I'm almost bigger than it, um, but I kind of get in there. Anyway, I, I cruise around in this little Starlet. Sometimes I get the luxury of the Mazda 6, but very rarely these days. Um, we were on holiday some time ago uh, um, up on the, on the Gold Coast, and um, we hired a car when we were up on the Gold Coast. It was wonderful, and guess what happened? We got upgraded 
for free. I never get upgraded for anything in my life. We were given a brand new Volvo S60 twin turbo coupe. It was really nice. It was stylish and man, it was fast. I've never gone from where we were staying to get milk around the corner so quickly in my life. Man, so quick. And I'll tell you, right, as I was driving it, other drivers look at you differently when you're driving this car. It's a nicer look that I get from other drivers as opposed to when I'm driving the Starlet. Like, when I'm in the Starlet, right, people look at me and probably go, gosh, what happened to his life? When I'm, in the Mazda, when I'm in the Volvo S60, people are going, wow, he's made it, yeah? He's looking good. It's a trivial example, right? But it's the seductive power of money, isn't it? It isn't that we like shiny bits of metal or plastic in our wallets. What we love are the pleasures that money can give us and become normal for us. What we love is the esteem that it guarantees from other people and the good looks that we get when we, people notice that we're driving a nice car or wearing a nice shirt, whatever it might be. Money is eminently lovable, but we mustn't provoke God's jealousy by distorted love. Instead, what do we do? We seek contentment. Or another way to put it, seek moderation. That's the principle of Proverbs 30. The writer of the Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. In other words, it's better to be denied wealth and have God than deny God and have wealth. That's the principle of moderation, of just being satisfied with God's daily provision. That's what God spent 40 years teaching his people in the wilderness. We're in Deuteronomy, right, just recently. God's people had wandered around in the desert on their way to the promised land, and God promised to feed them every day manna from heaven, exactly what they needed to live and survive that day in light of the coming day. Bread every day, why? So they would learn to trust God and be content with what he provides for them. Because he knew that the day was coming when they would get into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a land of wealth and abundance, what would be their greatest threat? Their greatest threat was not so much the nations around them or the nations in the land. The greatest threat was that they'd get really comfortable there and they'd stop being content with daily bread. They'd seek more and forget God. You know what? It's exactly what they did. Seek moderation. Let's protect our hearts from false loves. Why does your approach, my approach to God and money matter? Because there is only one God and he is jealous and money wants your service. Your money wants your trust. Money wants your love, 
He wants your heart and your hands, but only God is worthy of those things. Let me leave you with this clip. A reminder that our God is truly worthy of our service, our trust, our love. That God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one worthy of our heart. Have a look at the screen. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Let's pray, let's pray. Uh, again, we read in the word, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful uh, gift and provision of your son, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Father who came from the riches of heaven into the poverty of our world in order that men and women and kids like us could be rich, rich towards you. Father, we thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives, that we've experienced your grace and your mercy. Father, may the experience of your grace and mercy and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus change our hearts. Father, we pray that we would not be men and women whose hearts are keen to chase after idols, keen to chase after wealth, but more and more keen to chase after your son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we go deeper into the gospel, Father, may you change our hearts and open our hands that we will be men and women known for our gospel-shaped, gospel-fueled generosity for the good of one another in our church family, for the joy and the good of those amongst whom we live and ultimately, Father, for your glory. So Father, we commit our hearts, we commit our hands afresh to you this morning and empower us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.